Welcome to the preaching and teaching ministry of Mary and Oaks Assembly of God in Ocala, Florida. We invite you to open your Bible as we join Pastor Tim McIntyre for today's message for Bible study. So tonight we are continuing and getting close to the end of our series on the life of Peter from fisherman to follower of Jesus. And the title may be a little shocking is Peter's hypocrisy. Peter's hypocrisy. We're going to be looking at um, one of the last um, stories of Peter's life in scripture happened later in his life. And it's not near as well known as most of the other stories um, of his life. Now, hypocrisy is a big deal. Okay. Um, anybody in here like hypocrisy? I mean, that's a big complaint for just about everybody. And I'm not just talking about Christians. In fact, that's a big complaint of non-Christians. Isn't that like the number one reason that people often give for not wanting to go to church or be part of a church because the church is full of hypocrites? And I've heard somebody say, well, just tell them, well, come on and join us. There's always room for one more. (laughs) And we laugh. And if we say that the wrong way, it can be very snide and cutting, and it can be very offensive. But there is a lot of truth to that because, you know what, we are all hypocrites to some degree or another. If you look at what hypocrisy and being a hypocrite means, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. But not only is it one of the main reasons people give for not wanting to be part of church or going to church, it was the main thing that Jesus accused the religious leaders of his day of, And it was the main thing that he warned his disciples not to follow the influence of the religious leaders in. Um, Hypocrisy is a big deal in Scripture. But that begs the question, what is hypocrisy? What do you think of when you hear the word hypocrisy? If somebody were to ask you, what does it mean to be a hypocrite? What is hypocrisy? How would you respond to that? John? Two-faced. Okay. Now, that's a colloquialism. What does to being two-faced mean? Okay. You appear to be one way, and in reality, you're actually opposite or different. One of those two. Yeah, Chris. Okay, hearing the word but not doing it. Okay. I would add a little bit to that. Lots of people can hear the word and not do it, but if they don't claim to do it or want to do it, they're not really a hypocrite. But if you hear the word and you claim to believe it and plan to live by it and you don't do it, there you go. You're a hypocrite. That's where the religious leaders come in in Jesus' day. Any other thoughts about what hypocrisy or being a hypocrite is? To pretend to be something you're not or put yourself forward to be something you're not. By the way, I forgot to mention a little while ago, if you're looking at your note sheet and say, oh, the back page didn't get printed right because it says application and there's no notes there, because we're doing things a little bit different tonight. We're going to work our way through the story, and then all of us together are going to do the application together. So as we work our way through this, if you think of something that comes out of this story of Peter's life that we can apply, jot it down real quick, because I'm going to give you a chance to share that um, as we get to the second part of our lesson tonight. All right, so here's the definition of hypocrisy, one of them anyway, off of the Internet. Um, and this is good. you got to pay attention because it's very official and formal, but it makes a lot of sense. It is the practice of claiming to have moral standards or beliefs to which your behavior does not conform. And you say, I believe this as something intellectual or I believe this is right or wrong, but yet your behavior doesn't match. Okay? All right. It means to pretend to be what one is not 
or to believe what one does not. All right? In other words, you pretend to be something, but you're not really that. Or you pretend to believe something, but you really don't believe it. Now, I came across this one. This is the one that's on your note sheet. It's brief, simple, but it really lays it out. Hypocrisy is to profess what you don't possess. <laughs> In other words, you say you got it, but you don't. Whether it's your beliefs, your actions, your character, you profess it, you put it out there like, this is me, but you don't really got it. Here's a quote from a guy named Sam Rainier. I looked it up on the internet. He's president of Church Answers. He says, a hypocrite is someone who acts differently than his or her stated beliefs. In one sense, we're all hypocrites because none of us live up to our own standards. You know, as we've been working our way through Peter's life, we've seen that Peter has done a lot of things right, done a good number of things wrong. He's had his issues along the way. Um, as we've studied his life, we see that he grows in closeness to Christ and his relationship with Christ. He's growing more and more to maturity. He's growing more and more in his usefulness and effectiveness to spread the gospel in the kingdom of God. But it's interesting because this event we're going to look at takes place later in his life, at least the part of his life that is covered by Scripture. He could have lived another 20, 30 years after the end of Acts. Okay, And all we have about his life from that point is just church tradition. It says he died in Rome. He was crucified upside down, all that kind of stuff. But as far as the Scripture is concerned, but this episode in his life where he demonstrates hypocrisy is actually later in his life. Okay, But I want to make this very clear that as far as we can tell from Scripture, and I believe this is true, that even though we're going to talk about a situation in his life where he demonstrates hypocrisy, it seems to have been a one-time event. It was not a lifestyle. Something happened, and it caused him to act like a hypocrite. And we want to draw whatever um, principles we can from that. So like I said, just keep an eye out for them as we go through, and we'll give you a chance to kind of share them uh, a little bit later on. We're going to be looking at Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 21, and then Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. So we're going to jump into the story, and um, a lot of the story that we're looking at tonight has the foundation of, uh, of the last several lessons we've done. And many of you have been here for all those lessons. Some of you have not. So we're going to kind of do some review very, very quickly um, to lay the foundation. But before we jump into the story... The background here is the situation between the Jews and the Gentiles of that time in history, all right? And we've talked about this a couple of times. The Jewish people were God's chosen people, right? The problem came is when they took that to heart and they made a bigger issue over it than God intended for it to be. In the sense that God called them his chosen people, but he chose them to be a light to the world so that other people could join them and become part of the chosen people. But unfortunately, all too often, the Jewish people said, we're God's chosen people and we're going to keep everybody else out. All right. By the time Jesus shows up, there's this great barrier between Jews and Gentiles on the Jewish side. The Gentiles didn't care. But the Jews looked at their history and all the instructions God had given them, their traditions, founded in Scripture, and then some man-made ones that were added to it, and said that we need to be totally separate from the rest of the world and um, basically have nothing to do with people that are not Jewish, unless we absolutely have to, which would be the Gentiles, because Gentiles were basically anybody that was not a Jew. 
Now, again, there's some foundation to that because God told them to not imitate the sinners in the lands around them, but it didn't mean that they could not have an influence on them. All right. And so by the time Jesus shows up, the early church, um, the Jewish people are like, well, we've got, if we have to deal with the Gentiles, we will, but as minimal as possible, we will not go into their homes. Because we have these standards of righteousness and holiness and cleanliness. And that's not just washing with soap and stuff. But according to the Jewish law, cleanliness had to do with being holy. And being unclean had to do with being unholy. And it affected every area of their life, including and especially what they ate. And so that was the thing. You don't have fellowship with Gentiles. You definitely don't eat meals with Gentiles. You don't know what you're going to be served. You're probably going to get something um, because they were pretty restrictive that you're not supposed to eat. It's going to make you unclean, going to make you unholy in God's sight. All right. And um, the primary um, distinction, physically anyway, between Jewish people and Gentiles is the Jewish people were circumcised. Most of the Gentiles, not all of them, but were uncircumcised. And God had instituted circumcision all the way back to Abraham. I mean, even before the law. When God called Abraham, he says, I'm going to raise up you, your family, into a nation that I want to reach the world with. And the sign that you and the people of your family that becomes the nation are members of my people, all the males need to be circumcised. So by the time we get to this situation, that was a big deal. Gentiles could become Jewish proselytes, and was almost Jews, but they had to agree to live by the Old Testament law, and the males had to agree to be circumcised, and there was a process and a procedure they'd go through, and then they would be accepted by the Jews. Now, Jesus has shown up. He's died for the sins of the world. He's been buried, raised again. He ascended into heaven. The gospel needs to go to the world. And lots of Jewish people are becoming Christians. Jesus is their Messiah. But what does that mean for Gentiles? And that's what the church is wrestling with. And we've been looking at the last couple of lessons because God is trying to shift the focus. Because up to this point, the Jewish people, as I said, don't want anything to do with Gentiles. But now the Jewish Christians are like, okay, well, Gentiles want to become Christians. Well, they need to become Jews first, or at least at the same time. Because God's worked through the Jewish nation. So if they want to be Christians, that means they need to keep the law like us. You know, we still keep the law, but we believe in Jesus. Well, they need to keep the law. The guys need to be circumcised. At least there's a faction in the church that believes that. But some of the others are wondering, well, maybe it's different for them. But I don't know because this is God's holy, righteous law. And so God is trying to set that all straight. All right. So let's do a little bit of review about things we've already talked about on your note sheet, parts of the story. We're not going to read all these passages. We're going to summarize, okay? But the first part is that Peter's prejudice against Gentiles is challenged by God. Now, I'm going to call this prejudice because all of this basically worked out to a great big prejudice thing, okay? Not quite the racial thing like we think of today, um, but it's the Jews against everybody else, all right? And so this prejudice that I'm talking about here is exactly what I just described, Peter is a good Christian, but he's also a good Jew. And if you would ask him before all these events, well, what do you think about the Gentiles? Well, God loves them too, probably. 
but they need to join us Jews, you know, and, and get with the program so they can become Christians. And so God challenges that in chapter 10. And that's where we have the story we talked about probably about a month or so ago where this Gentile God believer, Cornelius, who's a centurion, who's a good man, believes in the one true God. He prays every day. He gives um, to the needs of the poor. And he's praying one day and God sends an angel and says that he admires and accepts the things that he does that are good. And there's a better way. And he's going to, he has somebody to bring him a message about how to be saved. And he needs to send some messengers to go get Peter, who's in a town 30 miles away. And then Peter will come and tell him what that message is. And so he sends the messengers. And then Peter, at that time, the messengers show up, is up on the roof, which is another living area. And he's praying. He's waiting for lunch. He's hungry. And God gives him this vision where he sees this great big sheet, like a, a ship sail, same word for a ship sail, load out of heaven, full of all kinds of animals, clean and unclean. Remember, again, it's not dirty versus clean. It's, it's holy and unholy. Well, I can eat what I can't eat. And God says, hey, you're hungry, kill and eat. Peter says, no way, God, I've never even touched something that's unclean according to your law. And God says, if I call it clean, don't you call it unclean. Has that vision three times. And he knows God's trying to speak to him, but he's not really sure what it's about. And then the messengers show up and say, hey, our master wants you to come. An angel, he's got, says, you got a message. And he says, okay, okay, now I see what it is. I got to go deal with some Gentiles. And God's trying to say, go ahead and do it. You think of them as unclean. You're not supposed to be around them. But God said, this situation's clean. All right. So, number two, again, this is review. Peter overcomes his prejudice while ministering at Cornelius' home. So, a couple days later, they show up, 30 days, you know, 30 miles there, 30 miles back. They show up in Cornelius' house. And uh, to make this story short, Peter says, normally I wouldn't do this, but God told me it's the right thing to do. And so I'm coming in, and he's preaching the gospel telling them about Jesus. They already heard about Jesus, but who Jesus was and all that kind of stuff. And even before he can finish preaching, the people turn to God in faith. It doesn't state that, but it's obvious they do. And God pours out his Holy Spirit upon them, and they begin to speak in other tongues. And it's so obvious that God says this is the right thing. So Peter is obedient to God because he had this vision. And then, you know, when these people show up, the Spirit tells him, go with them. This is what I'm talking about. Okay, And so God verifies Peter's actions by saving Cornelius' household and filling them with the Holy Spirit. And there's no doubt, because they're all speaking in tongues. Brings us to the third part of the story. Again, this is review. Peter defends his actions to other prejudiced Jewish believers. Okay, so he preaches and he stays for a while. Okay, because he's discipling Cornelius and his household. It's implied that he's spending lots of time with them. So what does that mean? It means he's spending lots of time with them. They're probably having meals together, which is a no-no according to Jewish tradition. And even at this point, Christian Jews would say that's a no-no. Okay, that's the way they were raised. This is our religion. We believe in Jesus, but you don't do that. So God has convicted him. He's got to change. But this news gets back to Jerusalem, and they're like, what is Peter doing? He's the head of the church. He's the number one disciple. What is he doing? So he goes back to Jerusalem and they, they, they say, hey, what were you doing? And so Peter explains to them exactly what happened from the vision all the way through the preaching, you know, and how the Holy Spirit fell and they became believers. And at the very end of his comments to them, he says, who was I to try to stand in God's way? All right. And then number four, the last part of the review The Jewish believers accept Peter's explanation and God's obvious verification. 
it says in Acts eleven eighteen that they actually began to glorify God. It's like, man, God's even saving Gentiles. Amazing. But that didn't totally, totally, totally solve the problem. Um, there seems to be an indication they thought it was kind of an unusual, maybe a, uh, an exception to the rule or whatever, because the problem's going to crop back up. In fact, it's going to crop back up for the next several years. It's going to take a couple of years to, for the church to work their way through this issue that the gospel is for everybody, and people that aren't already Jews don't have to become Jews to accept the gospel. All right, so a couple of intervening events that we haven't studied, but we're not going to dig deeply into. Um, right after that happened, there was a church that was started in a town called Antioch. It was started by Jewish believers, but Gentiles are starting being attracted to it. So now Gentiles are getting saved. So we have in Antioch the very, very first church that's made up of Jews and Gentiles. And the leadership in Jerusalem hears about that. They say, oh, oh, we don't know if this is right. So they send Barnabas to check it out. Barnabas sees that God is moving in a powerful way. He encourages them. He becomes their pastor. The church is growing phenomenally. He says, I need some help. So he sends for Paul. Okay, Paul's been saved now for a couple of years. He's up north. So he says, Paul, come help me pastor this church. And so they're pastoring the church together. And then next thing we see in the book of Acts um, is what we studied last week, where Herod puts James to death. He imprisons Peter. He's going to put him to death, and then Peter's delivered by an angel, and he has to get out of town. And so that's where his leadership of the church kind of fades away, and Jesus' brother James becomes the next leader of the church in Jerusalem. All right? And then right after that, Paul and Barnabas are led by the Holy Spirit to go on a missionary journey all through Gentile territory. So God is beginning to move powerfully. Now, they, when they go throughout what is now Turkey, Asia Minor, they go to the synagogues, they reach out to the Jews. Some Jews accept it, others reject it. So then they open it up to the Gentiles. So now Jewish people are getting saved, Gentile people are getting saved. The Jews that don't like them have a riot. They kick them out of town, whatever. But Jews and Gentiles are both being saved. But all these Gentiles are being saved. And Paul's not saying, well, now that you're saved, you got to get circumcised. Now that you're saved, you got to start keeping the Jewish law. So it starts to stir that all up again, especially in the church back in Jerusalem. What's Paul doing now? Is this really what God has? Okay? And that brings us up to where we start the story today. I know I zipped through that quick, but I wanted to do that so we got more time to discuss our story today and the application. Okay? So that brings us to the fifth part of the story. Jewish believers, not all of them, but Jewish believers try to impose legalism on Gentile believers. So God has been saving Gentiles now for maybe a couple years now, but not around Jerusalem so much, but out there in the world, and the reports are getting back. And so when we pick up the story in Acts 15, chapter uh, chapter 15, verse 1, Paul and Barnabas have come back to Antioch from the first missionary journey. So let's read verses 1 to 5. But some men came down from Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, home, home place for the church, Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, in other words, they had a lot of talking about that and it was not all peaceful. It says, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So it's not the apostles, it's not the elders, it's not the leadership of the church is coming. It's other people that are part of this faction in the church that says, you can't do that. And they go to Antioch and say, Antioch and say you got to stop this. Verse 3. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. And when they came to Jerusalem... 
They were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it's necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It says some of them that were party of the Pharisees. These are Pharisees who had gotten saved. But they were clinging very, very closely to their tradition, which may, may not have necessarily been a bad thing, but they were saying that everybody has to serve God the same way we do, according to this tradition. And, and when it says that they spoke up and said, it is necessary, the word that's used means it is absolutely necessary. I mean, there's no two ways about it. There's no alternative way. If these Gentiles want to be Christians, they have to be circumcised, and they have to keep the law of Moses. And that's causing a lot of problems. Paul's already come to the conclusion that's not the way God's working with the Gentiles. Because we're saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross. But the Jews believers are saying, yeah, but that all came out of Judaism. So Judaism is part of that. All right. So that gets us to the sixth part of the story. Peter defends freedom from the Jewish law for Gentiles believers. Okay, so Peter's going to defend this situation again, starting in verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, uh, here we go, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about the story of Cornelius. This is now a couple years since then. And God, who knows the heart bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. He says, you know, the Jewish law is part of our tradition, is part of our history, but even we couldn't live by it. But now God's doing a new thing. He's saving people apart from that. It's by faith. It's because of grace through what Jesus Christ did. And he says, you know, we dealt with this a couple years ago. I told you about how God did that. All right. So then uh, number seven under the story here, the church in Jerusalem officially declares the freedom from the Jewish law for Gentile believers. I'm going to read real quickly from 12 to 21. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished, um, after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, which is Simon Peter, uh, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a, group, uh, a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment, and he's the leader of the church, is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. So here's what they did. They had a big discussion, big debate. Then Peter gave his testimony and his defense. Paul and Barnabas give up and share what God had been doing through the Gentiles on their trip. 
And then after a time of prayer, James basically says, you know what? It seems like the Holy Spirit's leading that God's not going to require the Gentiles to keep all this Jewish law. He's not going to require the Gentiles to be circumcised. Let's just write them a letter. And in the rest of the chapter, you can read it later. They do write a letter and send it out to all the Gentile churches. Um, you know, God's not requiring you to keep the law. But you know what? We need to be in fellowship together, Gentiles and Jews together. And there are certain things that are so abhorrent to Jews that if you could do these things, it would really be helpful for our relationship. And that basically was, you know, whatever you do, eat with meat, don't let the blood be in it because we're not supposed to eat blood. And, of course, sexual immorality is something that's true for everybody. Um, and, and stay away from idols and all that kind of stuff. All right? Now, here's the thing that's interesting. The Jew, this is called the Jerusalem Council. The Jerusalem Council's decision affected, supposed to affect, how the church viewed Gentiles coming into the church and their relationship with the law, but it did absolutely nothing to define what Jewish Christians' relationship to the law should be. Okay? In other words, the Jewish Christians are still Jews, and so they're still going to keep the law, and there's nothing wrong with that because that's their background, but that's going to continue to kind of get them to think, well, shouldn't these other people do it too? All right? All right. So they send out this letter to the Gentile churches, but there are certain people that the Bible calls, the New Testament calls, the party of the circumcision. They're also called Judaizers who are going to go out on their own authority. And Paul had to battle this a lot. He got so upset about it. That's why he wrote the book of Galatians. He wrote a bunch of stuff in Romans about it because these guys would go around where Paul had planted the church and they'd slip into that church and they'd say, hey, listen, it's a good thing you know Jesus now, but now you've got to take the next step because to really be a good Christian, you've got to be circumcised. In other words, they, even though the church had decided, you know, the church council, you don't have to do all this stuff, Gentiles have to, they were slipping around and trying to tell them, yes, you do, you do. And so Paul battled that for a number of years, okay? That brings us up to the story. I'm going to give you a chance to talk in just a minute. Just had to get here, okay? So let's turn to Galatians chapter 2. All right. After all that, in Galatians chapter 2, starting in verse 11, Paul is basically kind of giving the history of his life and of his ministry. And I'll just say this before we read this story. We don't know exactly for sure when this event took place. A lot of Bible scholars believe it took place right here now, after the Jerusalem Council. There is a possibility it took place before the Jerusalem Council. Okay. Either way, though, the impact and circumstances that came out of it were pretty much the same. All right, Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14. Paul's talking about all the work that God did through him and how he went up to Jerusalem, met with the believers, and they said, oh, you're doing a great job. Just be sure to take care of the needs of the poor, verse 11. But when Cephas, this is Peter, okay, Cephas is the Aramaic name Peter. When Cephas came to Antioch, so Peter comes to Antioch. This is that church up north, you know, where Gentiles and, and Jews are serving God together, all right? But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. So Peter came to visit this great church, and they're having a great time. They're having fellowship, you know? probably doing some Bible teaching, probably sharing something. Well, when I walked with Jesus, you know, and Jesus said this, and, and they're having meals together. And remember, at this time, meals were not just, okay, we got to eat because we're hungry. There were times of fellowship. And in the church of this day, when you had a meal, you took communion, all right? There was a part of that meal where you had the Lord's Supper together, all right? And Peter was doing that, no problem. But then these men came from Jerusalem. It says, from James, 
not necessarily trying to say that they had the authority of James, but from the leadership in Jerusalem. It says, until they came, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. I could just almost hear this in Paul's voice. Paul and Barnabas have been friends forever. They went on the first missionary journey together. He said, even my best friend Barnabas was affected by Peter's hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So Peter comes, visits, you're having a wonderful time, having fellowship, but then people from the circumcision party, from the Jerusalem church, the ultra-legalists, the, the, the um, Judaizers, as they're often called, they show up, and Peter's like, uh-oh. They probably even said some things to Peter. And so Peter stopped eating with the Gentiles. And it's more than just he stopped having lunch with them. They probably stopped taking communion together. And because, uh, well, let me put it this way. Why did Peter, why do you think Peter did this? We'll, we'll start getting back into discussion. Why do you think Peter did this? Okay. For fear of what people are going to say about him. Chris? Okay, so he didn't want to fight and argue with them. Okay, didn't want to make a scene. Well, he made a scene. <laughs> it's just he with the wrong party, you know. But also think about this. We didn't talk about this tonight, but perhaps you're familiar with this. That there's a scripture where it talks about that even though God used Peter to open the door to the Gentiles by going to Cornelius, that when him and Paul met each other and talked and stuff, they kind of agreed. Well, God was sending Peter primarily to the Jews, and he was sending Paul primarily to the Gentiles. And it could be that Peter's thinking. Okay, if my, you know, if my, my reputation goes back to the Jewish people, I'm not going to have the effectiveness with the Jewish people that I once had, maybe. But do any of these excuses justify what he did? No. What makes what he did wrong? Yeah. How many times have we been in a situation you're faced with two things, and no matter which one you do, you're going to be in trouble with somebody? And I won't ask you to raise your hands, but how many times have you made the wrong choice? I've made it sometimes. You got this choice, one, and one, no matter what you do, you're going to offend or hurt somebody's feelings or get somebody upset with you. And usually it's, you, you choose, if you're in the flesh anyway, which one can I offend the least? <laughs> which one's going to give me the most, least amount of grief, right? And it seems to indicate because of the personalities and stuff involved here that the Gentile believers may give me less grief than the Judaizers because they can cause me a lot of trouble. And so even, here's the thing though, Peter knew better. I mean, his experience with Cornelius and everything that led up to God made it very clear. It's okay to have this fellowship with the Gentiles. You're supposed to reach it. You open the door of the church of the Gentiles. You're good. He knew better, but he did against what he knew was the right thing to do. And we can't complain too much because we've done the same thing, right? Chris? Yeah, that's where the idea of a stumbling block, where somebody's actions can cause problems for other people. In this case, it was excluding people that God had accepted. Okay. Now it says that, that the rest of the Jews, some of the Jewish Christians, including Barnabas, followed his lead. Why did they follow Peter's lead? Because Peter's a leader, right? I mean, they're leaders too. Barnabas is a leader, but he's like the, I mean, he's been with Jesus longer than anybody else. You know, his influence. 
shows you a lot about what your influence can do, good or bad, right? The result was basically probably the first church split in Scripture, you know? Now they've got two different groups of people. They've got the Gentile Christians. They're all eating together, taking the Lord's Supper together and stuff. But the Jewish people have said, we're not doing that no more. But they're probably still, I'm sure they're still eating. But you've got this church that was, that was Jews and Gentiles having such wonderful fellowship together and love and God's working power. They sent out the first, you know, Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary trip. And now the church is split. Now, so some Bible scholars say that Paul may have been gone on a trip and he came back and saw this happen. It's like, oh my goodness, I gotta put a stop to this. Or it could be that he was there and as soon as it happened, he says, I gotta put a stop to this. But it says that Paul rebuked Peter publicly. Now, some people say, why did he rebuke him publicly? Because, you know, Jesus said, if there's a problem between you and a brother, you should go privately. But that's a private issue. This is a public issue. This is something to split the church. And Peter is the leader, one of the primary leaders of the church. And there's something going on. And it's like everybody knows about it. It's got to be dealt with. Okay? Mm-hmm. He wrote to Timothy in particular. He said, when you're dealing with a leader, many times it's got to be dealt with publicly because of their influence. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, Norris. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, did, he had to set it straight for the sake of the day. You know, how do you think the Gentiles are feeling? Well, we were accepted. Now we're second-class citizens. We're not good enough. But even more significant is taken to its extreme. The logical conclusion is, well, if these people can't eat with us because we're not circumcised, and be, then I guess we do need to be circumcised. And so it was changing, actually changing, or, or, or the devil could have used it to try to change the gospel. In fact, that's what it says here that Peter... Uh, I mean, Paul was so aggressive about this because it was not in step with the truth of the gospel. It was changing the truth of the gospel. The gospel has been you come to know Jesus by faith because of God's grace and what Jesus did. Now it's like, okay, you can become a Christian. It's by faith because of God's grace, but you also got to be circumcised. And you got so it's the whole thing that the enemy was trying to do about the Judaizers creeping into the church. It's like we got to put a stop to this now. So it wasn't just that Peter was being rude or socially rejecting the Gentiles. He was con- his actions were contradicting the basic gospel message. And it's a good thing he took the stand because if he didn't, there could have been two totally separate churches from that point in history. And unfortunately, through history, there's been other things that divided the church, but that's totally beside the point. All right, so now let's get to the application, okay? I tried to hurry through that as quick as I could, but it still took a while. So instead of me giving you all my application... Okay, what are some of the things that you see in this story that we can apply to our lives, either about hypocrisy or about leadership or or dealing with problems or whatever? Did anything jump out at you? I've got a list of them, and I can give you some of them, but I'd rather hear hear from you guys. John. Yeah, don't be a hypocrite. If you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. Live out what you say you believe. Now, do any of us do it 100%? No, because we're still in process of living up to what we know is true, right? But neither should we use it as an excuse like, well, I can never totally live up to it because I'm a fallen sinner here, so I'm not even going to try. So don't be a That's my number one here. Don't be a hypocrite, all right? Live out what you say you believe. What other truths can we draw from this? Lynn, give us one. You can give us five, but give us one. Yes, realize that others are watching us. Our influence... That's right, our testimony and our influence. Now, this is more significant for leaders because they have more influence. 
I think I mentioned it on Sunday. That's why James says that teachers, because they, you know, but other leaders will be held more responsible because they have a bigger influence. You know, this has nothing to do with me as a whatever. But if I were to go out and commit some major sin, like commit adultery or whatever, it would have a bigger impact on more people than just some everyday ordinary person sitting in the pew. Although that would have a tremendous impact too on the people that are close to them. That's not to minimize that at all. Okay? But our testimony, as Lynn said, and our influence is important. And that's why it's so important that we try not to be hypocrites. Okay? Yeah, Chris. Yes. You know, if somebody messes up, restore them quickly and move on. And so there's a number of principles there. Number one, we are never too old or too mature to mess up. Okay? And that's a warning to those of us that have known the Lord longer. If we get to the point of thinking, well, I'm close enough to God, I know nothing about Scripture, I'm not going to mess up or whatever, we're just headed for a fall. Pride comes before destruction. But not only that, but we may end up getting involved in something that we don't even recognize because of our pride. That's what happened with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. They didn't think they were, they didn't think they were hypocrites. They didn't think that they were far away from God. Okay? But because of their pride. But the good news is that if we do mess up, and that's good because we all will, we can be restored, and there is forgiveness, okay? It's better not to have sinned at all <laughs> and made the mistake, but when you do make a mistake, fess up. Get it right with God, get it right with the people, and go forward. And, you know, we see the influence and impact of Peter on the church. You know, whether this happened before the council or... If it happened before the council, Peter learned his lesson, and he was the first one to stand up and said, yeah, we can't require this of the Gentiles. But even if it happened afterwards... He got it straightened out, and he had a tremendous impact on the church for the rest of his life. Okay? All right, any other thoughts you can draw from that? Joe. Good point. Jesus died for everyone, and the invitation is for everyone. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody can come to Jesus on their own terms. Just because the Gentiles didn't need to be circumcised or eat the right, right things according to the Jews, it doesn't mean that they could live however they wanted. They still, there's still the moral law that God requires of everyone. All right, but Jesus, And we don't need to exclude anybody. And of course we say, well, I don't exclude anybody, but do we ever exclude people practically? In other words, are there certain people or types of people that we don't really care much about sharing the gospel with because we just don't relate or they turn us off or they... Whatever, that type of people, you know, we've got to deal with those kind of things and see if there is anybody in our hearts that's like, well, we have more of a tendency to not care about them or not share the gospel or not be that concerned about it for whatever reason. Any other thoughts about the application of this? We've got to look at ourselves. We're, you know, I don't know about you, but it's so much easier to see faults in other people, you know? And that goes back to what I preached a couple weeks ago. We're talking about Luke where Jesus said... You know, uh, he didn't use the word hypocrisy, but that's what he's talking about. You've got, you know, you're trying to take this speck. You see this problem in somebody else's life, this speck in their eye. And this whole time you've got this big telephone pole coming out of yours. You know, we need to look at, he says, first deal with your own issues. So that's a very good point. We need to examine our own hearts. And it's something we should do regularly. Lord, what is there in my life that maybe I'm not seeing that needs to be dealt with, you know? Because I want to be used by you to help other people that have specks in their eyes, but I can't if I got this big issue in mind. Yeah. Anybody else? I see Chris back there. I'm going to try to take. Well, they haven't, you know, used different people. Amanda. Sometimes, yes. If something happens in public, deal with it in public. You know, there's guidelines in Scripture, and you got to have discernment and stuff. You know, sometimes things happen in public, and you still got to deal with it in private. 
You know, if a kid acts up in public, you want to deal with it in private, which that's not a doctrinal issue. But there are some things that need to be dealt with in public, and there are some things that need to be dealt with in private. And we need instruction from Scripture and wisdom and discernment. But things that have been done in public that have affected people in a major way, one way or the other, it's got to be dealt with in public. Whether you deal with that person in public or you deal with that person in private, but yet you make the effect known publicly. So that's, you know, whatever's been done in public that's affected a lot of people has to be corrected in a way that they can all know about it. So that, that definitely is a good principle. Okay, Chris, what else did you have? And then we've got to wrap it up. That's a good point. We already talked about if somebody messes up, restore them as quickly as possible. But if you're the one that messed up, don't give up. Okay? The enemy wants you to. God doesn't want you to. But let me just look through my list and see if there's anything you guys didn't mention. You guys mentioned most of them. Don't be a hypocrite. Um, obey God. Don't follow peer pressure. You know, that affects all of us. The fear of what other people will think. Like I said, if we're faced with a decision, I got it. no matter which way I'm going to go, it's going to offend somebody, hurt somebody, cause a problem for somebody. Who's going to give me the most grief? Don't worry about that stuff. What is right? You know, what's the right thing to do? Don't allow peer pressure to push you the wrong way. Um, Accountability is a good thing. We all need it, okay? Um, No Christian leader should be above correction. When you see a Christian leader out there in the world, they're well-known, and they fall morally, financially, whatever, a lot of times it's because there was not a good system of accountability in place, you know? Accountability is good, okay? Salvation is by grace. We talked about that. Watch out for legalism, don't let other people impose it on you. Don't try to live by legalism and don't impose it on others. And that's not the same thing as obedience. We need to walk in obedience, okay? Um, even the best of us can fail at times. Leaders have tremendous responsibility to live the truth. Um, when we fail, there's opportunity for repentance and restoration. We've got to take the gospel to all people. You guys covered pretty much everything I had down. You guys did great. So as we close in prayer, just think about how do I need to apply it to my life, and that's between you and Jesus, so... Father, we come to you right now thankful again for a good lesson, a good um, looking at a story from Peter's life, Lord God. Peter, a great man of God, even in his later life, Lord, not toward the end, but, you know, after he's grown to some maturity, he's being used powerfully by you, he makes a mistake, but you don't give up on him, Lord God. He's corrected. He goes forward. Father, wherever we are in our walk with you, whether we've only known you for a short time or maybe we've known you for decades, help us to always be willing to look at ourselves and deal with any issues that are there. Show us, Lord God. I pray that for myself. Lord, show me anything in my life that could be a problem that's not right, that that I need to deal with, Lord God. And Father, help us not to be hypocrites. We're going to make mistakes. We're, We're still all growing and learning. But Father, I pray that you would help us to live in such a way that our testimony and our lifestyle, and our influence, our words, our actions would not be a major stumbling block, to use that phrase we talked about earlier, to someone coming to know you or to serving you well. And Lord, when we do mess up, help us to get it fixed as quickly and as best as we can. Father, we just thank you and praise you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed listening to today's message or Bible study. For more information, please contact us at area code 352-347-3001 or visit us online. If you are interested in supporting this ministry, go to our website and click on the online giving tab. Our website address is www.marionoaksag.org.